You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to, well, 60 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm J.R. Southall from the Blue Box Podcast. Hello, I'm Mark Donaldson from On The Time Lash. And I'm Matt Nieder from I'll Explain Later. And, well, that's a beautiful segue. Shall we tell everybody what we're up to, or should we just leave it for them to work out? Or shall we explain later? Oh, very good. Yes. <laughs> do, I have, do I have to drink at this point? Is that how it works? Is that... I- well, ask Mark. He knows. Oh, this is a very good well, point. <laughs> well, um, you know, against type, I actually have a mug of tea with me today rather than any sort of alcoholic beverage. But, uh, yeah, take a drink. Why not? Take a drink. <laughs> Whatever you have. Right. I'm having a swig of tea. Matt, what have you got in front of you? I feel I've, I'm drinking a glass of red wine. This is uh, that I found in the cupboard. So am I, I'm, <laughs> I'm the only one drinking booze tonight. This is uh... you found a glass of red wine in the cupboard, or you found a bottle and then decanted it into it. Yeah, I found a glass, gave it a sniff. It seemed all right. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. Well, you know, red wine improves with age. Mm. Although uncorked, unbottled, and in a glass, perhaps not so much. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> sterile cupboard. <laughs> I'd better had explain. Well, I mean. Maybe I'd better explain. Regular listeners will know. I do this every now and again. I like to listen to a lot of podcasts at work. And when I find podcasts I really like, I also like to spoil myself by inviting the people in those podcasts onto the podcast so that I can ask them about what they do. So here you are. Here's a little pre-Christmas treat for me. (laughs) So... We have, well, I'll ask you to explain what the podcasts are all about, but we've got On The Time Lash, and, well, On The Time Lash has got an absolutely hilarious, sorry, I just thought my recorder had gone off, has an absolutely hilarious format, and Mark, you're going to tell me what the format of your podcast is. Uh, yeah, so I mean, the, the format is we, um, we were working our way through the new series of Doctor Who, uh, from Rose onwards. I think at the moment we are, we've just finished Flesh and Stone in the Time of Angels. And what we do is we pair that up with a classic story that is in some way, usually quite tenuously suggested by, um, by the new series story. And what we do as a little additional treat to ourselves is we also choose alcoholic drinks that, uh, are in some way suggested. <laughs> by the podcast and just have a, a nice time getting drunk and talking about Doctor Who. So how much it's... will you generally drink during one record? <laughs> um, we usually tend to sort of behave ourselves during the recording, but there will be some episodes which kind of go on too long and, you know, you've got through a bottle of wine or a bottle of Prosecco and a few a few glasses of beer uh, and you should see the, the after party. Just, <laughs> just, just... Well, this is the thing, and that's why you have probably the best name for a podcast in the history of Doctor Who podcasting on the time. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, it's oh, when I mentioned it before. I mentioned it before on Facebook or Twitter, and everybody said, "Oh, that's a great name for a podcast." <laughs> but you, well, what we? Sorry, no, it's all right. Go on. Uh, well, no, because I mean, what we wanted, Ben and I, kind of uh, met through the Edinburgh Doctor Who group, which met in a pub. And what we kind of wanted to do was kind of recreate that atmosphere of talking about Doctor Who in a pub with people you like. 
and uh, and yet on the time lash seemed as good a title as any for for that activity. Well, this is the thing. Oh, the the kind of podcasts that I prefer are the ones that are sort of less heavily formatted, where it's just like two, three, four guys chatting, and it is like you're eavesdropping on a pub conversation. But you've actually taken it one step further, and you didn't really keep this up, I don't think, but you actually started by recording your episodes in the pub, didn't you? We did, yes. So Ben um, ran some comedy nights in a pub uh, called The Beehive in Edinburgh. So obviously we kind of had access to their function room. Um, So yeah, so we recorded pretty much the first... Uh, so you, were, you weren't actually out there sitting at the bar talking about dogs. I, no, think, I no, think no, we'd no. have been we barred a... if we tried that. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there was a couple of episodes where we did, I think during August in Edinburgh, um, it's a nightmare to get free space in the pub. So we did a few episodes where we were kind of in an actual functioning bar, which was sometimes quite difficult in terms of editing. Um, but yeah, so we would, we recorded those in, in the Beehive pub in Edinburgh. And I've since moved down South Bend as also down here so yeah we can just record them in ben's house now which is uh obviously much less controlled um there's nobody to tell us that we've had enough which is uh, a dangerous a dangerous endeavor <laughs> i was gonna say recording in somebody's house is less controlled but yeah <laughs> but okay so ben moved down and you moved down from edinburgh edinburgh to london but not presumably at the same time as one another not at the same time i mean ben was actually living in london uh, well he was living in oxford when we when we started the podcast um, but obviously because he was running these comedy nights in edinburgh he would be back and forth while so whilst i was still there so we would oh. schedule the recordings around his visits to edinburgh because we didn't want to kind of um because we kind of felt our the way we do the podcast it's better that the two of us are in the room together and i think yeah. that's the same for i mean a lot of skype podcasts work this being one of them yeah. obviously yeah, yeah. Uh, right now and uh, but we we kind of felt just the way we kind of interact with each other would better transfer like if we were in the same room, same room together. Oh yeah, and it works. I th- that's what I like. Although we do it by Skype as well sometimes, and obviously when you do things like this, you have to do it by Skype. But I, I'm one of those people who prefers to do it all in the same room, purely because when I'm on Skype, I find I'm shouting at the computer screen rather than just sitting and chatting but yeah (laughs) that's one of the side effects that you can't really avoid matt yeah i'll explain later you can explain now oh thank you very much the format of your podcast (laughs) and how it happened so how well uh the format is basically so there's three of us there's myself there's uh, jim hall and john west and we put out one show a month and in it we look at two uh, stories from the classic series and one from the new series, quite often which have a a, a slightly tenuous link, a bit like a bit like Mark's, <laughs> um, but uh, sometimes that can be a little hard to make that work. Um, and yeah, to be honest, we just uh, we just kind of uh, chat about them and 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 sort of try and come up with a fresh angle on it, really. Um, and I think so. What sort of happened, or, or what's panned out quite nicely about doing the show is, I think all three of us kind of come to the show with with quite a different perspective. I mean, Jim. Uh, Jim is has been a fan, sort of. Since, you know, he's was watching the show sort of back in the back in the seventies and the eighties. Um, I only I'm slightly younger, so I only came to it during the nineties. But been quite a, a, a long term fan since then. Uh, and John is. Uh, I mean, I've known John for a while for about uh, just over twenty years now. But uh, he's. Uh, you know, come come to the show comes to the show with a slightly fresher perspective. I think. So it's quite nice just to sort of look at look at 
a couple of classic Doctor Who's and a new one and and just sort of chat about them really and see and see what we take away from it. Um, and to be honest, it's just it's been a really fascinating experience, kind of going back and and looking at a lot of those shows with a with a fresh perspective. Well, then the thing about John as well is a lot of these stories he's watching them for the very first time, isn't he? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, it's like I'm probably about fifty fifty. I mean, there's still quite a few stories from the classic series that I've never seen. Uh, but obviously there's also quite a few that I have seen. I mean, you know, having sort of grown up as a Doctor Who fan in the VHS and DVD <laughs> era, it's very much that so you have to sort of seek seek this stuff out if you want to watch it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where, whereas John, you know, is, yeah, he's coming to loads of it for the first time. And, and I've got to say, I mean, you know, I've known John a long time, but his, his take on it is fascinating and it's really hard to predict what he's going to, what he's going to like and what he's not going to like. Yeah, I've noticed a few times you'll come up to a story and you're, you know, both you and Jim are thinking, well, this is a stone cold classic, or else yeah. you're thinking, well, this is dreadful. Are we going to find nice things to say? Are and you talking John... about Kindergate here? Well, Kinder was one of them. Well, Kinder was particularly one of them. He absolutely hated it. Almost that, came didn't to he? blows. Yeah, he loathed it. Oh, dear. Dear, dear, dear. That's unbelievable. <laughs> <Love> <laughs> Well, that, yeah, but I suppose if you'd never seen it before, because my first impression of Kinder, albeit when I was 12 or whatever, when it was on, was, what the hell is this? This is terrible. And it's only through <laughs> repeated viewings that you actually mm. realise just how great it is. So I suppose what we were getting on the podcast, pretty much live, was John saying, what the hell was that? Well, look, I don't want to. I don't want to speak for him. I think it might take a lot for him to uh, go back and watch it a second time. So I think it's a lost cause. <laughs> oh, really? What a shame. Sadly, I can't uh, remember. Have you got to snake dance yet? No, we haven't done snake dance yet. I mean, the way the way we're doing it is that Jim has um, sort of J- Jim's put together a spreadsheet which basically maps out the next five years of our life in sort of te- <laughs> absolutely terrifying detail. Uh, yeah, it's proper sort of serial killer material. Um, but we we tried to sort of set ourselves certain rules about, um, you know, where you've got a doctor for whom there's, uh, you know, slightly fewer episodes like Christopher Eccleston or something. You know, you don't want to hit all of those uh, yeah. too early on. You don't want to get to too many. You don't want to do what they did with the VHS releases and leave all the leave all the terrible ones to the end of the run. Um, and at the same time, we were also trying to find like we've only just started doing some of the earlier Matt Smith stories. Um, because it feels like enough time had passed uh, since a lot of those went out to to start to have a slightly sort of fresher perspective on it or to be able yeah. to look back at it as slightly mm. older television. Whereas I think it's going to be a, a few years yet till we sort of till we start to phase in some of the Capaldi stories. I just think because they're possibly slightly too slightly too recent. Are you going to get to a point where you're going to have to switch to doing two new series and one classic series? Because as you go on, the numbers are going to catch up, aren't they? Uh, potentially, but at the rate at which the BBC are turning out series at the moment of doing sort of one every three or four years, I think it's... Uh... <laughs> I think we might be the only fans who are sort of grateful for how they've dropped the ball on that one. Oh, fair enough. Well, you've sort of alluded to it a bit, but one of the things... Because when I first started the Blue Box podcast, I did it because I was asked to. And Mm. at that point, I'd never heard another podcast. And uh, it wasn't until we were about something like six weeks in when the guys were saying to me, have you listened back to the recordings yet? And I was saying, no, you know, I just upload them to the website and have done with it. And And they kept bugging me to get an MP3 player so that I could listen to them back. And eventually I did. And I've not really looked back since then. Since then, I listened to 
you know, various Doctor Who podcasts every day at work. But, but, but I suppose, Mark, first, were you listening mm-hmm. to podcasts before you started your own podcast? And was it other people's podcasts that kind of had an influence on you wanting to start your own? Well, it's funny. I mean, I, um, pr- prior to On the Time Lash, I'd listened to a lot of podcasts, but not necessarily Doctor Who podcasts. Oh, um, yeah, fair enough. I just, I don't know, I don't know what it was. There was, there was quite a few of them that I just didn't quite connect with for some reason. Um, so I would kind of listen to a lot of film podcasts, um, some video game podcasts that I really liked. Uh, and I started my own film podcast a few years ago, which, which I did for a while. And I really enjoyed doing that. Um, and the, the idea to do a Doctor Who podcast never really uh, occurred to me, um, because it was something, that I kind of kept for enjoyment, you know, Saturday every week, you know, I would sit down and watch Doctor Who, I would thoroughly enjoy it, and that would kind of be the end of it. Yeah. I'd look forward to next week. Um, and then the 50th was coming up, and Ben and I went to the the um, the anniversary convention at the XL, and um, I was staying with him in Oxford at the time, and we went for a couple of drinks the day after the anniversary, and he sort of said to me, you know, you, you've done podcasts, you know, would would you be interested in doing a Doctor Who podcast? I feel that we should kind of do something um, to kind of capitalise on this kind of like rebirth of our fandom. Because it was, it was a really exciting time, 2013, I'm sure yeah, you, yeah. you both agree. Um, and it really did kind of remind you what an incredible show it is and just how much of it there is and how, you know, Doctor Who magazine can be running for 500 issues and still find things to say then surely two guys in a pub can can attempt the same um so since then i've certainly listened to a lot uh to more to more doctor podcasts just to see what the competition's like you know (laughs) do you know what actually the funny thing about podcasts is you stick two guys in a pub or wherever and they have a conversation and they can go over exactly the same thing as the magazine does and exactly the same thing as has been covered on confidential and has been covered on half a dozen other different podcasts but i tell you what what people listen for is a your opinion but also be the personalities and the personalities is key to whether a podcast works or not so i mean stick two guys in a pub and it doesn't really matter if they're talking about something that everybody else is talking about it's the people who are talking about it is more important than the actual subject yeah, I guess, and I think it's sort of it's it's also the likelihood is greater that those two people are going to know each other socially as well, which means there's that built-in chemistry there. Yeah, yeah. I think it's sort of not like I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I guess it might happen, but I'm not sure if anyone is hired to do a podcast by a producer or alongside someone that they've never met or something. I think that would be a bit odd. Yeah, that's true. I th- I think it is it is chemistry. It is you know people tend to do these things with people they like, and I think that really kind of comes across. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in a lot of the podcasts that I enjoy, it's it's very often friends that are you know doing a podcast together, um, and about something that they both love and you, um, or that they both dislike, and you can kind of you <laughs> get that um, that passion, uh, which is which is such a fascinating thing to listen to. It's why I mean I'm obviously like like I've said you know big film fan um, and a current film student, and one of the things I love doing is going to Q and A's and going to hearing hearing people discuss you know their their work with with somebody else. You know it it's a fa- there's just something fascinating about just hearing a really good well formed conversation. 
Absolutely, even if it's really good and well-formed by two people who are halfway towards being drunk. Yeah, well-formed and half-cut. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> How about you, Matt? Were you guys podcast listeners before you started? And did that have, you know, an influence on you wanting to start? I'll explain later. I, I think, I think, boringly, my story is almost exactly identical to Mark's. Um, I mean, I think uh, I, I was a podcast listener, but not uh, not massively a Doctor Who podcast listener. Right. Um, but that's sort of how I, I met Jim in the first place. So Jim uh, used to do a podcast about five years ago uh, called Midnight Video, which was a, a film podcast that he did with a guy called Phil Walsh. Uh, and that all wrapped up when Phil moved to the south of France. But there was a um, there was quite a big sort of social component to that podcast that they were always having sort of listener drinks in London. Uh, and so I I went along to quite a few of those because I was a huge fan of of, of Jim and Phil's podcast. Um, and obviously Jim and I, as, as two Doctor Who fans tend to do, sort of sussed out quite early on that we were both fans. Uh, you do that sort of experimental reference to uh, a slightly obscure bit yeah. of continuity and see if the other person picks up on it. <laughs> so we, we sort of eventually found that whenever we were having, whenever they were having those midnight video drinks, uh, me and me and Jim would always end up wanging on about Doctor Who in the corner. Um, and so then when when Midnight Video shut up shop, uh, Jim mentioned, you know, that he was interested in doing another podcast um, and was, was considering doing the Doctor Who podcast if uh, if I was interested in getting on board, which I said I was. Um, and then I suggested that we, we that Jim and John met each other because I sort of had a hunch that John was very sort of excited and enthusiastic about Doctor Who, but also... You know, I knew I knew him to be uh, an interesting talker, but also someone who who would come at it quite fresh and and really sort of throw himself into it. Uh, so yeah, the three of us went and went and had a bit of a planning session in a pub in central London, and then eventually sort of got our asses together and, and started recording a few episodes. Um, but yeah, how I long mean, did it take before between sort of deciding to do it and actually sitting down and recording the first one? Do you remember? Uh, it was probably best part of a year actually i think wow. just in terms of getting our schedules together i mean so i'm we're, we're kind of it's all a bit all over the place and it's always a bit of a nightmare kind of scheduling when we're going to record episodes which is why we're sort of quite proud of ourselves that we have managed to more or less stick to a one episode a month schedule but, i mean john is a is a full-time journalist and i'm a tv producer yeah um, and so quite often you know i'm i'm you know shooting something or in the edit or something like that so so finding the time to actually regularly sit down and we're like mark we like to sort of do it face to face as well so we all tend to sit down in my living room uh, and record it there uh so it, it took us about a year from from concept to execution if that doesn't sound too lofty um <laughs> but then uh you know we we decided so we started recording them um probably around March last year, but didn't put any out until June. So we wanted to have a stockpile of about three or four episodes in the can where we knew it would be good and we knew what we were doing, that we'd make it work and that, you know, I'd figured out how all the editing was going to work and sort of how all the, you know, the format. I guess, you know, because I'm a TV guy, I sort of quite like format. I like that security there that you've got a format that can work. Um, but the nice thing about your format is, although you choose three stories... Like Mark, and you know, on Mark's podcast, which is two stories. So you've got that sort of format, but.
but it, it's not one of those ones where it feels hideously oh now we'll do the, this and then we'll do that and then we'll do that you know some podcasts it's like five minutes of this ten minutes of that and yeah, you know while that's good yeah. yeah that's good for some people but for me i like it just to be a relaxed conversation so when on i'll explain later you talk about say kinder or whatever you get a good half an hour's conversation on kinder before you move on to something else like on marks if he's going to sit down and talk about you know, time of angels and flesh and stone, you're going to get a good 45 minutes on that. And it's just, you know, a couple of guys, three guys chatting about something. That's, that's what I really like about them. And actually the fact that yeah, you do format yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, <laughs> I was just going to say the way you do format it, the way you do means that if I've only got sort of half an hour before I have to uh, finish work, I can quickly get in a third of one of your podcasts yeah. or half of, uh, <laughs> Half of marks. Do you know what I mean? It's nice. It's nice having those cut-off points where you can stop and say, "Right, I can take that up tomorrow." Yeah, or we can go and have a toilet break or something. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's very important. <laughs> right, you were about to say something. Oh, or no. sorry, was that addressed to me or Mark? Oh, Mark, Mark. Yeah. I thought he was about to. Say Hello, sorry, there. I lost you guys for a second there. Oh no, that's okay. Okay, Mark, tell me something then. You put stories together. You're going through in order from Rose right up to, well, eventually you'll get to Peter Capaldi. How far ahead? Because we've just heard from Matt that he's, that, that Jim's mapped five years ahead on, uh, I'll explain later. How far ahead do you map on, um, on the time lash? Do you, have you like literally well, sat down didn't... and mapped out the whole lot or not? Yeah, I mean, we we didn't really pl- the first uh, the first Eccleston series we didn't really kind of plan out in advance. We kind of knew that we should probably do Rose and an unearthly child, and we mm. knew that we should probably do Dalek and the Daleks, and then we kind of just like worked it out as we went along. We kind of had this idea, this very very lofty idea two episodes in that oh we should ask our listeners you know what listeners <laughs> um, so. As it as it went on and it went on, I think it was only really I think the end of uh, David Tennant's second series that we sort of were in a pub. I think it was actually maybe before we went to see Deep Breath, or it was either Deep Breath or Magician's Apprentice, and we kind of mapped out what we were going to do for the next the next sort of run of episodes. Um, so we would kind of talk about oh well, um, like for example, oh Partners in Crime, it's the return of of a slightly gobby companion. Let's sort of pair that up with Ark of Infinity. And we kind of worked, <laughs> worked our way through um, like that. And we, we did the same again um, with Matt's first series um, uh, sort of last month. Um, so we've kind of got it planned as far as the Pandora opens. And then once we've once we're sort of reaching the end of that series, we'll probably sit in another pub and come up with what we'll do for series six. So, so it's not what... quite as forward thinking as uh, as matt's podcast <laughs> well if you want i can outsource jim for a fee he can come and plan your podcast for you it's, uh, he's very good. yeah a consultancy fee yeah. okay we'll, we'll look into that he might come and he can come and sort out mine because usually i don't know two weeks ahead what we're doing oh, it's the the spreadsheet is a thing of beauty it's color coded it's planned <laughs> out it's it's wonderful we're very lucky to have him i made a spreadsheet when we started i said we're going to do a topic every week and you don't think when you do that, that you're going to still be there five years later <laughs> doing a topic every week. And I wrote down yeah. something like 50 topics, and I thought, oh, that's good for the first year. And after about three months, we just kind of 
started doing other things. And still I have that sheet of paper, well, sheet of paper, that sheet of document on my computer. And it's still got about half the topics I'd planned for the first year that we've never gone back to. (laughs) But one day. Mark, (laughs) of all the pairings of all the stories that you've put together, what's the most sensible and what's the most unsensible, do you think? What's the maddest oh, pair? Well, I'm just thinking, has there been one week when you've come to the point where you say, and now that we've talked about X, we're going to talk about Y, and you've sat there and you've thought to yourself, and I have no idea why we put those two stories oh, together. Oh, there was... God, there was one that Ben and I had a very long... I think we almost fell out over it, but I can't for the life remember what it was now. Um, it might oh, have been really? Arkham Infinity. <laughs> it might have been Arkham Infinity, but um, just because I didn't want to watch Arkham Infinity, but then I sort of bowed to his Noah's. I see where you're coming from there. Okay, fine, we'll do it. It might be a laugh. Um, You've got to suffer for your art. Yeah. You do, you do, right? Yeah. You've um, got to make it through all of them eventually, haven't you? <laughs> well, yeah, so you kind of, you've got to space these things out, haven't you? You've got to um, pop them in. Um, I think probably one of, the, one of the more sensible ones, although maybe we didn't give it as... Uh, much thought as we could have done was um, comparing the Green Death with Boomtown um, and kind of, you know, representations of whales in Doctor Who. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it didn't it didn't quite it wasn't quite the sort of academic um sociological <laughs> podcast <laughs> that I think we we thought we were gonna do. It kind of just descended to the two of us doing silly accents. But uh I think that was probably the most sensible one, but maybe didn't uh get the most sensible treatment. Well, to be fair, the Green Death sort of descends into people doing silly Welsh accents as well. So, I mean, it's... Uh, well, they descend right into there. it. That's how it starts. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, remembered, I've remembered what this, the, the one that we, we had a falling out over was. It was Blink and uh, the Stones of Blood. And I was like, what? Because they've both got stone-based life forms in it. And Ben was like, yep. <laughs> I was like... Fair enough. Genuinely. And I was like, well, because I can't come up with anything in Doctor Who's history that was quite like Blink before it. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that that seems fine. I kind of had this silly idea that we should maybe do something from the future. Um, but then that would kind of just really mess with the format. And Oh, the yeah. only so other one I... With the stones of blood on that one. The only other thing I think you could have done is the Space Museum, where they jump a time track, which is basically... That you know, was... Yeah. Yeah, I think that was under discussion, yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we kind of went for the Stones of Blood. <laughs> yeah, why not? How about you, Matt? Have there been any, has there been a, an episode where you've looked at what Jim's got planned out and just thought, what are you on, Jim? Well, to be honest, I mean, it's because we, we started off trying to be very careful about making sure everything had a linking theme. And that so it became a bit of a liability to sort of plan it all like that. So now. Um, you know everything's arranged so that we've got a, a nice distribution of stories um, that you know we're not you know th- that we don't burn through all our sort of Ecclestons or, or anything like that and that you know you, you you have a nice spread of classics and and duds or underrated stories throughout. Um, we so started it, it, off with things like three stories that all take place underground, didn't it? Yes, and then that sort of became a bit looser. So now, uh, now it's the case that I think it, it's pretty much the random story generator, and then we have a look at them afterwards and see if there's you know anything that possibly connects them up there. So our recent <laughs> seafood special, where we had uh, <laughs> the invisible enemy and the macro terror. 
Um, and then the stolen earth, which doesn't fit at all. Uh, but you know, we we threw that in there anyway. It it kind of doesn't doesn't quite add up. Um, but I think I mean I think what was sort of more important for us was um, I think it's really interesting to kind of throw together completely different eras of Doctor Who, you know, completely different decades, um, and and see what works. And I think the amount of common ground that we found uh, between various eras, especially between the old series and the new series, has been fascinating. And I think it's you know for for us it's certainly you know we we weren't too keen on the idea of um, you know, doing a doing a kind of chronological uh, look through the series. I think just because we felt that, you know, if we get if we get stuck in an era that's sort of, you know, for want of a better phrase, a bit repetitive, like the Troughton era, we were sort of worried that we mm. might be saying saying the same thing week in week out, pretty much. Whereas I don't know, there's often something interesting that comes from just sort of slamming together three completely different eras of TV made for three completely different audiences and and seeing what comes out of it, and it's like. You know, actually, mm. sort of weirdly, the respect I have for the series has kind of grown immensely from just seeing sort of how a lot of that it's, stuff hangs together across the entire run. It's it? interesting you say that, actually, about um, sort of three, you know, different eras and three different audiences, because I think that's what's forgotten a lot when when you talk about Doctor Who as this, you know, massive ranging thing, as if it was always made for this mythical one audience, you know, for, for Doctor Who, which it was no, never absolutely. the case, you know, it was, you know, and it, it's, yeah, it's, it's good to hear that. <laughs> It's, well, the, uh, it, that it, is you know, just exactly what I was going to ask, actually. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. It's, a big, it's a big old mainstream TV show, Saturday Night, BBC One, you know, the main channel. Um, you know, it's always, you know, and I, lots of people might disagree with me on this, but equally, I, you know, I think this is quite a mainstream view. I always think Doctor Who has been at its best when it's been aiming squarely at the mainstream audience. I think Doctor Who's, yeah. Doctor Who's sort of audience and commercial highs have always uh, sort of chimed, I think, with its creative highs. And I think, you know, the times where it starts to address its own audience a bit too obsessively, you know, are also not coincidentally the times which, f- for me, hold a lot less appeal uh, and also for, for a mainstream audience as well. I kind of think it's always a good metric of like, you know, if, if Doctor Who is working, sort of at least in previous series, where it was working creatively, it was also working well for a mass audience. I, made I, mod- this- I would modify that slightly in the last couple of years, but that's a separate point. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there, probably. We'll get there, yeah. Well, I was, ga- was going to say, I made this very same point on last week's podcast. In fact, you know what I said, which is probably going to sound quite controversial, I-, I think of Doctor Who, especially in the 1970s when Tom Baker is um, the Doctor, as being light entertainment. Mm. If it goes on on a Saturday night between the sport and the game shows and that, and really, usually made by a lot of the same people as well. Yeah, and for most mm. of the audience, it's less about following the plot as it is being taken to some unusual places, mm. which in effect is mm. kind of the same thing as is going on with something like a game show or a sports program. Absolutely. But also, I mean, I think yeah. it's it's something that I found particularly interesting is uh, w- certainly far more interesting than I thought I would was um, going back and looking at a lot of the um, quote unquote new series. I mean, it's now, you know, get, get on for <laughs> get on for 12 years old now. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's quite a lot of TV. But I do think what's what I found really interesting is going back to a lot of those Eccleston and Tennant stories. You know, I think most of them are pretty great. I mean, I've, I've not, I don't hide the fact that I'm a huge fan of the Russell T. Davis era. But I think those stories are starting to date in very interesting ways. They feel very much like a product of their time. 
Um, and the thing that's really surprised me about looking at looking at the new series is that it really does track how uh, how we watch TV has changed so massively in the last 10, 10 12 years. It's like, Absolutely. you know, it very much feels that, you know, it's it's still a big, successful, you know, uh, multi-award winning, you know, multi-million viewer show. Um, but it, it sort of feels like, you know, the way we watch TV now in the Capaldi era feels so different to how we were watching it in the in the um, Christopher Eccleston era. And I think I think the show sort of creatively has evolved to to reflect that. Well, that's, I was just going to say, Stephen Moffat said, you don't broadcast Doctor Who anymore, you publish it and people pick it up when they want to pick it up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think the choice to do cliffhangers last year is, is very much a case of that, because now, you know, you watch any Netflix original series, it ends on a cliffhanger to get you to watch the next episode, to get, you know, to, yeah. to sit in front of the TV for however many hours. So I think there is a kind of comeback of that kind of cliffhanger uh, structure and so that is why they, they experimented with it last year I, you know for good or ill but I, th- I think that's very much a product of of the way that we watch television there well talking about the way we watch television and going back to your own personal histories and matt you alluded to this earlier hmm. but but well can you remember what your first doctor who's story was and given that you came to it later how did you sort of go about getting into Doctor Who? Because it can't have been the most sort of normal thing at that time for people to be getting into Doctor Who. Right. Well, I mean, it was... Uh, so I was... I, I can remember it exactly. I was 10, uh, and I watched the uh, 30th anniversary repeat of Planet of the Daleks on <laughs> BBC Two, so 1993. <laughs> Um, and it was, it was just on, I was sort of just channel hopping and this, this thing came on. Um, and I was, uh, cause I was always sort of quite interested in, in sort of sci-fi, you know, sort of light sci-fi, TV sci-fi, that kind of thing yeah, at, yeah. At, at that age. Um, and, but I remember sort of feeling that a lot of the shows that were being made, you know, during my, during my childhood. So I guess we're sort of talking, you know, childhood when I was watching TV, we're talking the early nineties tended to either be cartoons or kind of imported American series. And I remember it slightly blowing my mind that there was this live action uh, British TV series that was, you know, albeit looking sort of slightly slightly rubbery and ropey. Yeah. Um, but but like Planet of the Daleks <laughs> does. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, this is the this is the weirdest thing now that we are uh, we are now further away from my first watching of Planet of the Daleks on the repeat than the repeat of Planet of the Daleks was from its first broadcast. If yeah. you think that went out 20 years on and now that's mm. like 23 years ago. Um, so that's just uh, that's just making me feel quite old. But, you know, it's, it, it's <laughs> sort of sitting where I'm sitting. Yeah. I watched Planet of the Daleks. That's my first memory of Doctor Who from the original broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so ah. did, you, did you bother to watch it on the repeat or did you skip it? Actually, no, I had it on video by then. Oh, fair enough. Um, but no, I mean, I watched. Oh, I shouldn't it on have repeat. said that because it wasn't released on video till afterwards. So no, um, no, something <laughs> else, something else. Someone, someone supplied you with uh, statute of limitations. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but no, I mean, so then they, you know, they repeated a few others on BBC Two. But then it was very much like, I, I mean, I could very easily um, throw myself into reading all the Target books because they were all in my local library. There were a few VHSs which I got out from time to time. But it was it was gradually sort of. Um, 
just you know finding finding it where I could really and I think sort of later when uh, when they started coming out on DVD I, I collected quite a few when I was at university um, but to be honest I mean it's still and I still find it quite exciting that there's a lot of classic Doctor Who that I've not seen and so now to be honest I'm quite kind of um, that's possibly one of the reasons why I haven't got around to watching the new version of The Power of the Daleks yet I'm sort of rationing myself that I only I'm only watching Doctor Who now, unless it's a new episode, like a, a new Capaldi episode, yeah, yeah. I'm only I'm only watching Doctor Who that is coming up as per that month's podcast. I've got to ask then: Is there a particular story you're looking forward to seeing that you haven't watched yet? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, so this is now going to be a really long pause. <laughs> well, exactly. let, let me I, I tell you what i'm gonna i'm gonna pull up a list of stories and, and try and answer that question properly so um ask, okay. ask mark a question i'll come back to you on that one well, i'm gonna ask mark then. <laughs> same question because you're a bit younger too well certainly younger than i am so do you remember what your first <laughs> doctor who story was and what your sort of I journey into the do. series yeah go on uh so Sorry. it was the year before matt's first uh doctor who so it was 1992 and it was the um now it was the repeat of the time meddler, um, so that I think started off that season of sort of repeats yeah. running up to the anniversary. Um, and my parents had kind of put me onto it to say, "Oh, you know, we enjoyed this as a kid." You know, like sat me down in front of it to see if I would enjoy it. And I didn't quite connect with it at first, and it wasn't until a few weeks later when the mind robber started that that I was just like, "What on earth is this? This is fantastic!" And it was that uh, cliffhanger where the TARDIS explodes. And uh, Patrick Troughton is just floating in space whilst Jamie and Zoe sort of revolve around on the console. And I was just like, this is like nothing I've ever... I mean, I was seven years old, but it was like nothing I'd ever seen on on television up to that point. And that was it. I was kind of hooked. Um, I'm so sorry to all those repeats. Sorry to butt in, but it's so strange you mentioned the the mind robber because that was that was the first VHS that I ever owned of a Doctor Who story. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, and yeah, I remember. So you know that must have been in the you know first ten Doctor Who stories that I saw, and I remember yeah, age sort of ten or eleven. That absolutely blown my mind as well. It's so nuts. It's it is great, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I think it was. Uh, I didn't buy it until later on, to, and I, and it was. I just remember being really excited to revisit it, and and it, it still mm. holds up today. It's, it's. I think probably, not not just nostalgia, but I think it is one of my favourite Doctor Who stories, just because it, it's like nothing, you know, it's like nothing I'd seen before, but it's like nothing you've seen in Doctor Who, really. Um, well, it's written by somebody who patently kind of... doesn't know what the series is, and it's just been kind yeah, of... <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> He's should... basically just been asked to write a children's story with a sort of science fiction angle featuring somebody called Doctor Who, basically, hasn't he? Which yeah, in the Troughton yeah. era is a bit of a relief, because otherwise it's just a bunch of men on a set arguing about Cybermen. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet we still love him. Or uh... well, some of us still love him. <laughs> I, lo- I love him. I love him. I'm slightly yeah. bored by the stories. But yeah, that's a that's a side point. Well, you both you both came in during the early nineties. What exactly about the series do you think it was? I mean, apart from the fact that the mind robber was just a bit mind blowing. I mean, I it, it was out of time at that point. It must have seemed pretty old fashioned even to your eyes then. But so, do you know what it but was? I don't know if it was though, because I think at that time I do remember. Like Stingray, Thunderbirds, Man from Uncle. There was so much sixties television 
programmed oh, yeah. on that kind of evening slot on a, on a Friday in BBC Two. So it wasn't that much of a leap for me to, to watch Doctor Who. It's just, it's the one that kind of stuck with me, you know, beyond Jerry Anderson, who I absolutely adore um, as well. But, you know, it's Doctor Who that's kind of stuck with me um, to, a, you know, a 30-year-old man. It's, it's and, I, and I think the thing about it is that it can be anything. And I think, you know, I, I kind of picked up on that right from the, the start because, you know, one the, the sort of week before it was an old man um, and some Vikings. Uh, and then the next week it was a slightly younger man and there was uh, Gulliver's Travels was going on. There was all sorts of uh, strange storybook characters kind of interacting with each other. And I can't remember what the, the poetry one was that followed it, but I think it was maybe the Sea Devils. And again, it just... It, become something else entirely and that's I think a very good point actually if you're watching it completely it. out of sequence it's like it's you know it's just because you don't know what you're going to get next if you're watching it all for the first time with fresh eyes you know it's like yeah i was yeah. just going to bring this up if you're watching it out because you've just said about the patrick Troughton ones where you get to series season five and pre- well season four and season five and pretty much you're getting the same story every week you watch them out of sequence, you're actually getting the best of Doctor Who because I think even the ones that are the lesser stories in a season where the stories are all the same, if you watch it out of sequence, you're not going to be as bored by the things that you've seen the week before. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, it makes it a lot harder to be bored by it. And to be honest, it's like, you know, maybe that, you know, I'm just sort of a a, a generation that's, you know, had, had its attention span shot to pieces. But... I, I do sort of find it's been interesting over the last few years where, you know, the, the series has kind of reinvented itself a bit year on year un, under Moffat. But, you know, and as, and as I've sort of, you know, don't want to go too heavy on this, otherwise it will just become a Moffat <laughs> podcast this. But, you know, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan. Um, it's quite interesting having it, you know, just living with Doctor Who for sort of three or four years when you know you're not particularly into what it's doing at the moment because that's quite alien for me I'm sort of used to it almost just being like a sort of you know spinning the roulette wheel and 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 seeing what comes up and it might be terrible or it might be amazing but you just genuinely don't know and Mm -hmm. actually just if you came to this in 20 years time and watched the Moffat stories completely split up and spread out amongst your viewing experience like you have you might think of them slightly differently you never know oh no i i fully expect that i will do actually you know with the with the passage of time i mean it's we've started to phase in a few of the sort of season five stories into, into the podcast and actually seeing them out of context in a fresher light you know i still don't i still don't love them but i I certainly find them a lot more interesting than i did first time around uh yeah so maybe that's just that's how i'm used to seeing doctor who i'm used to being sort of bamboozled by the variety of it because it's it's something new every time did i sorry go on Mm -hmm. no 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 carry on well i was only going to say did either of you find anything watching them out of sequence like that and presumably picking them up on vhs and on dvd and so on was there anything that either of you got really confused by watching it that way? Or did it all sort of make sense? Mark? Um, I don't know. I don't think there was anything particularly... I I remember... I, th- I don't think... I, you know, obviously, at first you don't know what regeneration is. You just know that there's this kind of character... It's a different actor playing the character um, each time. And then I think there was like... I think the Radio Times special for the 30th anniversary. Right, I yeah. remember reading that and being like, oh, okay... And then I think from then I was like, well, I have to see all the regeneration stories. Hmm. Like you kind of, I don't know, there was just something about you from being quite happy to kind of 
cherry pick these stories and just watch what was being offered to me on B- the BBC. Like after that, it was kind of just like, oh wait, no, hang on a minute. Like there's like special event episodes. Like Im- there's important mythology here that you kind of want you want to get in touch with, which I think you do when you're a kid a little bit. You you do kind of want to tie tap into this mythology. Whereas now. I just really the stories I enjoy best are the ones where the doctor turns up and has an adventure. Yeah, um, yeah. But there was uh, there was there was nothing really that confused me. I think, but maybe it's because you know my parents were there going, "Oh, those are the Daleks. They're they're really great." Or you know, like, "Oh, these are the Cybermen." I don't, you know, I I don't remember what my parents were doing while I was watching it. Maybe they were kind of helping me along. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Matt? Was there anything that sort of befuddled you or did you find you absorbed it all all right sort of trying to trying to think really i mean i I sort of think i'm sort of quite similar to mark in that you know coming to it around the the 30th anniversary um obviously you know a lot of it at the time you know there was i mean not not that dimensions in time really explain anything (laughs) which you know is, is the second doctor who story that i ever watched just by dint of when it was broadcast um but you know you it's a sort of there was a lot of 30th anniversary retrospective stuff, uh, you know, on the TV and in the in the Radio Times, as Mark said. But I think as well, it's you know, if you if you're coming to Doctor Who in the early 90s, you know, it, it is already a show that you know has a mythology, and you sort of take it or leave it. Really, it's that you know the mythology may as well at that point have been complete. You know, there was no immediate prospect of anyone oh, making yeah. a new series, mm. um, and it, it's a show that is twenty six years of evolving mythology, um, and I think that's something you know if, you, if you're seriously interested in getting into Doctor Who at that point in time, that's something that comes as part and parcel with it, really. So you know, it's like my my interest was peaked by Planet of the Daleks. But, you know, very quickly, if you want to find out. I mean, the other thing that I did really early on, which, again, I think is probably just down to what was in uh, Tunbridge Library at the time. <laughs> but the I, I, I read the novel and uh, saw the VHS of The Five Doctors very early on. And that, I think, really does... I mean, I love The Five Doctors. It's terrible in all sorts of ways, but I think it's an absolute hoot. But also, as a just a kind of primer for the mythology of, like... Who the Doctors are, a smattering of the Companions, the Daleks, the Cybermen, the Master, the Time Lords, Gallifrey, the TARDIS. You know, it's kind of all there. You could sort of, I mean, you know, you, you could give that to a, someone who's come into it completely fresh. And assuming that they didn't run a mile having watched it, they would have a good working knowledge of sort of how the series works and what it does, really. So I guess, you know, just the luck of the draw coming to that very early on kind of laid it all out. It's like a little taster for all the best bits that you'll find elsewhere. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. It's like the. Well, I think it's like when you get a posh set of biscuits and you get the kind of uh, the bit of paper inside that explains what they all are. You know, that's what the five <laughs> doctors is for Doctor Who. You know, it is, there's well, much the better biscuits is, in the box, but uh, it's useful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's Terence Dix. So the other thing about it is, it's quite clear because Terence Dix doesn't. He doesn't write confusing text he's quite he clear in what he, he doesn't does. deal in subtext really terence sticks unless no. it's sort of <laughs> slightly clumsy right-wing analogies but uh yeah no there's 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 not much going on beneath the surface so it's, it's pretty straightforward oh i'm about to get to uh I, i've got a review copy just came through the door of um uh what's he called not i was gonna say mind warp it's not called mind warp is it the um <clears throat> 
the thing he did with Sophie Aldred with a Sontaran, a human, and a draconian stuck oh, in a cell. Oh, Do you remember from the mind game? Is it yes. mind game? Yeah, that's mind it. Game. <laughs> I just got a review copy of that, so I'll be spending I... part of tomorrow looking at Terran's dicks. <laughs> I, I really want to do an I'll explain later special at some point on a lot of those kind of mid '90s spin-offs because that's a. Yeah, so weirdly, actually, I kind of think one of my favourite eras of Doctor Who is is the nineties, oddly, just because that was when I was getting into it. But there's also so much kind of mental stuff out there, like that and downtime and shakedown and all of those, mm-hmm. and then the new adventures as well. And it's sort of, in some ways, it's it's a kind of era of Doctor Who that suits that kind of cherry picking. You don't know what's going to come next. Everyone chooses their own version of what they think the series is. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm sort of, I've got quite an affection for a lot of those spin-offs, even though they're sort of terrible to my memory. <laughs> well, there's a book <laughs> coming up all about them, so you should time oh, an really? episode of the podcast for that. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, and I'll keep an eye out for that. I'm, well, I'm sort if... of quite, I, I guess it's because probably like downtime was probably... I, I, you know, I saw <clears throat> downtime before I saw Spearhead from space. So, I mean, that's like wow. Yeah, that's really, we <laughs> I did was a, a deprived child. We did a review episode recently, actually, where we talked through a lot of them. Um, <clears throat> Do they hold up? You know what? The, I think they hold up better than I didn't see them at the time. I didn't see mm. them when they went out. I came to them around the time, probably when the series came back in the mid sort of noughties props just before and i didn't think much of them when i first saw them because wow, i think i think a lot of them dated about five minutes after they came out exactly so like, yeah. but i think actually <laughs> looking the back at them now with 20 years in between you can see the things that are good in them and you can oh, see what they sweet. were yeah and you can see what they were you can see what they were aiming for even though you can see the things that are getting in their way of actually achieving it but it's an interesting they're interesting to go back and look at no, no, Mark, you should definitely do that. Yeah. What about you, Mark? Mm. Did you see? Did you see any of those? I I never did. I mean, I remember seeing them in the you know in, in HMV and and Virgin Megastores and, and seeing that they were there. But I I was always kind of more into like you know I was more interested in spending my pocket money on the Doctor Who videos, you know, with, right, the, with yeah. the proper logo and the proper. Um, so I don't even think I've seen them now. It is something. I, I mean, when Downtime came out on DVD, it was something I was tempted by, but I just haven't just haven't got around to it yet. But um, I mean, I was aware of them um, and quite fascinated by, especially Downtime because it had characters that you recognised. Yeah, it wasn't like those the sort and of DVD audios. Well, yes, indeed. Um, it wasn't like the BBV, you know, audios that had Sylvester McCoy playing the professor, you know, and, and, and things like that. Um, it was, you know, it was the Brigadier, Sarah Jane. Um, so that always interested me. But, yeah, I would always just plump for the Doctor Who videos instead. I think you should give at least one of them a try, even though your first experience of it will probably be a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, I will. Okay, I will. I will. I will make a promise to to everybody here. I will. I will. I will certainly give it a try. Maybe I'll mention it on a on a t- in a future on the time lash. Wasn't yeah. the, wasn't the or, one of them that got an eighteen certificate and is sort of full of sex and nudity? Uh, one of the later ones, isn't it? Like the Zygon. Zy- the, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. There's a Zygon one where uh, yeah, they were sort of going for some kind of notoriety, weren't they? Well, I I've not seen that one, but what I heard was they got the right to use the Zygons. And then sort of got all this money up front to make a story about the Zygons. And then only once they'd actually sat down to start making it, did they realise that although they'd got the money to use the Zygons, they'd only got um, the rights to use the name and they couldn't use the sort of design. 
<laughs> so, so, if so they just had to make a porn film instead. I mean, well, yeah. Was... So if I remember rightly, <laughs> they kind of... But it was supposed to be... I'm not sure, but I think it was supposed to be... It was probably inspired by that line in City of Death, which makes you wonder exactly what Catherine Schell's been doing, married to this guy made out of spaghetti with one eye in the middle of his forehead <laughs> for all these years. When it comes to bedtime, I think Zygon was basically um, BBV or whoever it was doing, OK, so what happens when you find out you're married to a monster? I don't know. Maybe that was the idea. <laughs> but no. Maybe I'm don't not... watch that one first, Mark. That's uh... Okay, well, yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, I think the three <laughs> of us should all make a vow right now to go out and buy Zygon for, or get it as a Christmas present. Can you buy Zygon? I mean, it's... <laughs> They've all been released on DVD. Oh, okay. I stand corrected. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're all, all right. out there on DVD. So we should all buy Zygon and then get together in January and do the three of us a review of Zygon. <laughs> I'm I was going to say, I think, I'm just, yeah, I I think, think... I've just had an idea for the, the On the Time Last Christmas special. And here's my <laughs> and here's my promise to the listeners: don't be expecting this anytime soon because it ain't going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, that could be that could certainly be an interesting one to look for. But look, we we sort of hedged around it and we've mentioned bits of it. But but no, actually, uh, one more thing before we do move on to that: having watched the series piecemeal and out of sequence as you have done. And Matt, you said about the Patrick Trout stories being, apart from, you know, the actors, the characters, rather dull experience because of the repetitive nature of them. But did either of you, in watching the series the way you did, did either of you find a sort of bit of the series, one of the eras, as people call them, that actually is the one that appealed to you most? Matt, seeing as we were with you, is there, is there a period of Doctor Who you think of as your favourite? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's it's weird. I mean, the, the, uh, my two favourite eras, I would say, are probably the Pertwee era and the Eccleston era. Um, I think uh, there may well be an element of nostalgia to that in that, obviously, Planet of the Daleks was, was uh, my first classic story. And then, you know, the, the new series coming back and being, or, or the series coming back in 2005 and being really, really good was obviously mm. sort of immensely exciting. Um, and I do think that series, that first Eccleston series, holds up brilliantly. Um, but I think, I don't know, I mean, it's just the the Pertwee era, you know, I've fallen in and out of love of it a, a lot of times. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, coming back to it um, now uh, and doing a lot of Pertwees. Incidentally, the, the, the answer to your question earlier of what haven't I seen right, that yeah. I'm really looking forward to, which which ties in here, uh, is would be the Ambassadors of, uh, the Ambassadors of Death. Which I've, ah. I've never seen, um, but um, seeing as I pretty much—I mean, I've, I've seen everything else in season seven and, and absolutely adore it. Um, and I'm, you know, absolutely loving all the Pertwee ones when they come round, sort of on on Jim's spreadsheets. Um, I just really feel that's an era of Doctor Who that you don't have to make any allowances for uh, it. it like working under its own logic, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so I yeah. think the the new series quite often cleaves to modern telly logic, and actually, I think a lot of lot of seven sixties and seventies Doctor Who also works to sort of contemporary and sometimes modern telly logic. Whereas in eighties in eighties Doctor Who, it starts to work to you know just its own Doctor Who logic. Mm. But I think just as a mm. absolute sort of just copper bottom brilliant format that they could exploit week in week out and just get so many interesting things out of. The Pertwee era, I just think, 
think is absolutely fantastic. They really they really had it it nailed on in terms of just how all of those characters interact you know what the situation is the way it channels so many of the sort of social and political concerns at the time you know there's always some sort of energy crisis episode or you know <laughs> the the slow moving civil service interfering with the progress of science and all this kind of stuff it's like the the concerns of the day are baked into it and it, and he's just brilliant i mean he just i think i think he commits to it 100% far more than any other actor has ever done to the role i think he's absolutely amazing and yeah the odd thing is the Pertwee era is kind of an era apart for Doctor Who, isn't it? I think it's probably the only time in in the classic series where they say, "Right, this is our format. This is what we do." Yeah, and and that's a very that's a very modern approach. I mean, it's it's it feels authored the Pertwee era. It feels like uh, a, rather than just making it week on week and sort of just thinking, you know, Christ, we've got to get something out the door. Um, it, it feels like that everyone involved in putting it together has sort of sat down and thought, right, this is this is where we're going across the season. Like all all four, uh, all, all five series kind of build to a series finale. Um, you know, they they do arcs. You know, the fact that you know season eight they have this idea that every story will be about the pursuit of some rogue time lord terrorist who's stranded on Earth as well. You know, it's it's very very modern. Uh, it's a very modern approach to writing. It's a very modern approach to constructing uh, constructing a TV series. Um, and I think that's the thing that's really knocked me for six watching it now is how how few allowances I think you have to make in order to in order to just enjoy it as not just a good bit of Doctor Who, but as a straight up good bit of telly. And um, yeah, and actually, funnily enough, mm. going back to what I was saying about how it's atypical. I think the fact that it's atypical makes it easier to like because it distinguishes it from the rest of the series as well. And, you know, that's the thing about the Pertwee years. Like you say, the rest of it is kind of... You never know what you're going to get from one week to the next, which can be brilliant, but which can also be awful. In the Pertwee era, you kind of know what you're going to get. And even though you've got people like Bob Baker and Dave Martin writing stories the week after somebody like Malcolm Hulk... All of those writers mm. for that period seem to draw from the same well of inspiration. And this is obviously Barry Letts and Terence Dick mm. saying, this is what we want to make a programme about. And it's because the fundamentals of it are so tight as well. You know, you've, you've already got, you know, a, I think a very interesting take on, on the Doctor. You know, it's not necessarily just the Doctor as a moral hero. I mean, John has gone into much more detail on this on, on the podcast as to, you know how where where the third doctor sits politically in that you know i don't think either of us give any shrift to the idea of you know the third doctor was just a tory which is 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 some you know an accusation that's been made about him over the years but the third doctor is a sort of compromise third way consensus between all these other sort of social and political elements that are bubbling around him uh and then you know his his conflicted relationship with the master and how the Doctor and the Brigadier and Joe and all the other characters and the Master and how they all interact and have this sort of fully rounded kind of relationship, which means that you can you can just sit, set up a situation and just plug those characters straight into the drama and you're away. You'll get something worthwhile out of it. You know, again, again, I just, just it feels very modern. It's a very modern ensemble piece of telly. What about you, Mark? Have you got a favourite period from the classic series, or even yeah, you know, from anywhere in the series? I guess. I mean, classic series-wise, I think um, there's something about the McCoy era that I really kind of connected with, and I think it's it's probably just purely because it is 
an era of Doctor Who that is the closest to the television that I was watching. You know, the, the sort of modern television that I was growing up watching. Um, but there's just this... Yeah, and I know it's it's quite. Although I think it's getting a bit of a reappraisal now, but um, I think there's just such mystery in there and like such invention as well. It's kind of Doctor Who really kind of going back to this kind of this approach of you know like it can be anything. Um, and yeah, there's just some really big ideas, um, some beautiful design work. Um, it's. I think it's Doctor Who at its best at a period where it's you know it's losing funding, it's losing the interest of, of a maybe perhaps a more general audience, but also it's kind of it's moved away from that nastiness and unpleasantness of yeah, you know, yeah. of the Eric Sayward era, and it's kind of it's looking forward again, and mm. and yeah, fine, there is a there's you know a dark secret at the heart of the Doctor, but it's not really about that, you know. There's 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 still this kind of promise, and it's still about hope and conquering your fears. And, you know, it's an optimistic portrayal. You know, you look no further than that last speech at the end of survival. It's about constantly looking forward. Um, and, there's, yeah, there's just something. And isn't that Doctor Who in general, you know? Yes. It's an optimistic show. Yeah. So, well, yeah, uh, so that. But, uh, but the, McCoy, the, yeah, the McCoy era and the Pertwee era have two big things in common that a lot of the rest of Doctor Who doesn't. And one is that it's drama that's based around the characters. I mean, yeah, McCoy true, and yeah. Ace very definitely at the centre, you know, very obviously in season 26, but also in season 25. And mm-hmm. of course, the other thing that it has in common is that Cartmel is getting his writers to write, like Terence Sticks and Barry Letts were, to write stories about something that fit into his pattern yeah. of what the series is doing. So for once, Doctor Who is reflecting which it hadn't done for a good few years before that, but no, for, no. for three years at the end of the 1980s, hmm. Doctor Who's actually reflecting <laughs> the real world again for a change. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's an outward-looking era of Doctor Who that, uh, you know, I mean, I, my least favourite eras, I think, are, are, you know, have sort of for some time consistently been the sort of Davison and, and Colin Baker <laughs> eras. I think just because they, they are so... <laughs> You're inward- speaking my language there. Yeah, <laughs> all three of us. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's weird because I'm 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 sort of slightly conflicted on the McCoy era in that I think I I really want to like it um, because I like what they were trying to do and I like a lot of the ideas at the heart of it. But I think the execution in terms of the certainly in terms of a lot of the writing sort of leaves a lot to be desired. But what I really mm. appreciate and what I enjoy the most about it is that finally someone is, is sort of looking at literature and cinema and politics and music of the era and saying, what can we do with this? You know, I, I think, yeah. you know, uh, something like Paradise Towers, you know, it's it's so refreshing that someone is re- reading J.G. Ballard and thinking we can do something with this rather than saying, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea if the Cybermen tried to reverse the outcome of something that happened 20 years earlier or something? Yeah. No, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's just yeah. that's let's just make it look like an episode line, of The Professionals you know? while we're about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. It's or or let's eat the work of one of our greatest writers but lose any of the charm and charisma that he sort of brought to his own scripts. You know, that kind of just like mm. aping the violence and the unpleasantness of Robert Holmes but forgetting the jokes. Yeah. And yes, forgetting the, the engaging characters, the charm and, and the um, solid plotting and the yeah. witty dialogue, and yes, all of those kind of things. Yeah, all those important 
factors of a Robert yeah, Holmes script. Slightly. Yeah. But then I, I think I think a lot of the kind of classic era of Doctor Who sort of prior to the eighties and including the McCoy era is quite outward looking. I mean I think yeah. you know, the the uh, Hinchcliffe era I mean comes a little bit after the slightly after the heyday of Hammer films, but it's still very much looking at sort of you know, gothic was a, a big deal in the mid seventies, and it and it sort of mm-hmm. reflects that. Well, I this mean, is the, when the, the Hammer 60s... films was first turning up on telly. So this is, I guess, so this is when Hammer became something that wasn't just for people who went to the cinema, but for everybody. Well, again, it's probably just yeah. In that sense, it's Doctor Who fitting in with its TV context. Which, yeah, yeah, you know, that was yeah. something that. Like I say it's it's always the series has always done very well creatively when it looks around and, and sees how it how it fits into the TV schedules and what else people are watching. Okay, I'm going to move this on to September of 2003, and given <laughs> and well, this is an interesting question for the two of you because for us on the Blue Box podcast, we were all born in the 70s. We all grew up with Tom Baker, so when we heard that Doctor Who was coming back. It was a no-brainer. We were all like, what? Jaws drop and excitement builds up. (laughs) For somebody who's only ever experienced Doctor Who out of sequence and who's only ever known it as something that wasn't on the telly, when you heard that it was coming back, what did you think? Was that something that you... Go on, sorry, go on. Uh, sorry, yeah, no, I was just, just going to ask the question. I, um, I remember my, I think it was my mum came home and she was saying, oh, you hear Doctor Who's back? I'm like, yeah, it's some animation on, on the BBC website. I'm not really that interested. Because no, 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 it's, it's going to come back on the television. And I was just like, what? And I was kind of quite excited because, you know, this was finally going to be my Doctor Who. You know, we, we'd had a kind of dry run with the McGann film, but that never came to anything. Um, and yeah, it was kind of, it certainly reinvigorated my fandom because by that point I was kind of, you know, starting to kind of think about going off to university and kind of just being like, well, you know, this is this show ever really going to pick, you know, pick up and be its own thing? It's quite an expensive hobby, you know, to keep up with the big finished audios and the books and and all that kind of thing. Is it time to knock it on the head? And and no, it's not because it's coming back <laughs> on TV and it's it's going to be there every Saturday night and and I'm you know so glad it was. It's, it's great. Matt, how about you? Well, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, Mark obviously mentioned the, the Paul McGann film, uh, which was a bit of a stopgap during that era. And actually something, you know, aside from Dimensions in Time, you know, the McGann film was my first kind of proper brush with with new, proper kind of kosher Doctor Who, you know, and then <laughs> and the, the prospect that it might come back. So I mean, at, at no point have I ever been more excited for for new Doctor Who than I was was for the McGann film. Partly because you know, three three years into enjoying the show, it was kind of my first my first brush with with seeing something new. But I guess two thousand and three, I was uh, so I was at the tail end of university and i'd kind of dipped in and out during university as a fandom i mean i was never never part of any organized fan groups at uni but i you know i've listened to a few of the big finishes um i I sort of tended to prefer the more experimental ones like i remember around that time it was the doctor who unbound which i i particularly loved i thought that was great um but i i think the thing that made me think because i i kind of i'd sort of thought that it was probably inevitable that it would come back at some point i think only for reasons of of money i think i think it was like there was clearly 
if someone got it right uh, and 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 did something that could at least have a chance of attracting a mainstream audience, I kind of felt it was it was inevitable that there would be so much money to be made off the back of it that someone would want to have a crack at it. Just so can I, I just interrupt you though very oh, sorry, briefly? Yeah, of course. Just to ask Mark, did you? Because I felt. Uh, the same as Matt, I felt that it was in from about two thousand. I just thought it's going to happen at some point. It's just a case of when. Did you did you ever think it's going to, or did you were you in one of these people who thought well, it's never going to happen? I think I was in a bit of a kind of cynical teenager kind of a mood about it. I think I kind of just I think when it was coming up for the fortieth. And we were going to get like an animation on the website, and that was kind of and a documentary. I think I was kind of just like, well, that you know, it's it's still there, it's you know, still in people's hearts and minds. But I I can't see this becoming a television show. The very fact that they commissioned a an animated series on the website that suggested to me that this is kind of where this thing lives now. It kind of yeah. you know, it lives online. It lives. So yeah, I never kind of. I mean, I hoped it would come back, but I never. Unlike you guys, I was sadly not as optimistic as as, as you both. Hi, uh, sorry, Matt. I to, to go on back to you. <laughs> well, I was going to say. I mean, when, sort of when the announcement was made. I mean, yeah, just because I felt that you know, it's there was enough stuff ticking over, and it would keep popping up in the public imagination that it, it to me felt inevitable that you know, if we're going to get new Star Wars every few years or, you know, periodically, you know, people were going to revive things left, right and centre. You know, whether or not it was like a one-off movie or whether it was like a sort of, you know, straight-to-video kind of thing or whatever, I just felt there was enough stuff kind of going on constantly to for it, you know, it wasn't just, it wasn't just allowed to kind of just die into the cultural memories. People kept picking at it in a way and I felt like sort of it was it was probably going to come back at some point. I mean, for me, the excitement was that they announced it um, and announced announced it basically with a writer attached. It's coming back as Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who. Yeah. And when that announcement came out, I'd sort of just freshly watched uh, The Second Coming, which yeah, was yeah. Uh, his ITV drama with Christopher Eccleston as Jesus. Um, and that had absolutely blown me away. I thought that was... Um, I need to go back and rewatch it because I've not actually watched it since it first went out. But that made such an impression on me. And so that then combined with the fact that, you know, because I think they only announced initially that it might just be a six episode run and it would all be written by Russell T. Davis. I thought, oh, great. A Doctor Who miniseries written by the guy that did that thing that I just really loved. That That is just clearly going to be a good thing. Um, and so I... I, I you know, it's just sort of, and and then when it became like sort of thirteen episodes, and you know, it started to feel like it might actually be quite a big deal, um, and you know, they were they were gearing up for kind of like what looked like it was going to be a full franchise relaunch. It kind of crossed my mind that actually, you know, this this might be a really high profile turkey, and thankfully it turned out not to be. But well, I just thought, is... you know, it's like Russell T Davis writing a, a Doctor Who miniseries, like how can this not be good? Um and so I got very excited about it very early on. And when it did turn up, I mean we've already heard that Eccleston is one of your favorite periods of the show, but was it what you were expecting it to be? Um it was I don't know. I mean it was it, it was good and I kind of had hopes that it was good. I mean it was really good and it it got better week on week. And it was interesting because that was around the time. So I started working in TV in 2004 as a runner um, at a TV production company. Um, And I actually, I only remembered this the other day, but I was interviewed for 
uh, a runner's position on Celebrity Wrestling, <laughs> which was the show, which was a show that famously they they put on opposite Doctor Who, and um, I I got turned down for it because I couldn't drive, so I ended up uh, t- you know taking a bunch of other jobs, which eventually got me into comedy, which is what I do now, but. I remember like being quite interested to see what would happen with celebrity wrestling, this show that they'd sort of refused uh, refused me a job on. And when I realised that it was going up against Doctor Who and then it absolutely died a death, I think a lot of people, you know, it's almost sort of half watching it from an industry perspective because a lot of people just sort of sat up and went, oh, wow, like drama's back and, and Doctor Who's back. And suddenly it smoked out all of these people I was working with who'd been kind of long-term fans. Yeah. I just remember it being a, being a sort of very exciting time that... You know, it was on. It was really good, and kind of everyone, everyone was talking about it. But that also, it was, it was kind of resetting the industry slightly at that time. It was like it was, it was kind of changing things around me. It was, yeah, because it was. I, I then got a runner's job on a on a sketch show, which had um, Joe Joyner in the regular cast, um, and it was actually, I think it was actually written the sketch show by a load of people who'd written New Adventures stories as well, like pseudonymously. <laughs> I think like. Gareth Roberts might have written a couple of sketches for it. Right. But Joe Joyner was in it, like, and we were filming it at the time when the um she was appearing as Linda with a Y in the uh in the final episodes of the Eccleston series. And I remember this like blowing my mind and just wanting to ask her questions about Daleks <laughs> all day, essentially. Like, but also trying to keep it professional. <laughs> what about you, Mark? Because when it comes back, as soon as everybody hears it's gonna come back, everybody's like, right. And everybody knows what they want it to be. But do you remember what you wanted it to be and how closely did it fit in with that? I it's funny, I don't remember exactly what I wanted to want it what uh I'll start that again. I don't remember exactly what I wanted it to be. What I do remember is my dad texting me like just as the credits were rolling. And he said, Oh, that was you know, what did you think? And I just remember texting him, um really, really fast, really pacey, um, really funny but like still like quintessentially somehow doctor who like because it it was a 45 minute run around essentially mm. um which was not what i was initially expecting but i kind of got into it really quickly and i was like no this is this is doctor who this is a new modern take on doctor who and and i mean the testament to just how instant that success was is the following week it was a friend of mine's 20th um and we all went around to their house um before we went out drinking and uh, everybody was sat down watching the end of the world like and i was like this where the hell were you guys when i was watching vhs's in the 90s you know this, like <laughs> six six guys in i've had that thought 90s. so many times in the last 10 or 12 years <laughs> i know right sort of six guys in those sort of uh sort of 19 to 20 sitting around watching you know brand new doctor who and i was just like this is like it's only been a week and it's just had this instant success um so i mean it it, whatever expectations i had i think it they they exceeded it with that with that first episode and that audience reaction to to that first episode and have you well i mean you're both podcasting about it so i'm assuming to some degree you must how how successful to your mind have the last 10 or 12 years been you're still watching it you're still enjoying it mark yeah i am i mean um it's it's you know it's well, i don't want to say peaks and troughs but you know it's it's had its um it's, i think sort of two very key sort of banner years 
and I think that's you know ten, uh, David Tennant's last sort of full series. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'll discount the Eccleston series because I think that's we we all know that that was the you know the, yeah. the, a triumphant success. Um, but I think David Tennant's final series was just that. Just set again, set the country on fire. You know, people people were talking about it. People were watching it in pubs. You know, it was it was incredible. Um, so, and the stories are still good. I mean, I think the fact is, you know, there's a lot said now about the ratings and about how they've kind of they've. You know they're they're dipping and the the quality is not the same, but people are still watching it. You know Doctor mm. Who is still you know it's announcing new companions during the FA Cup final. It's <laughs> yeah. you know it's having a live a live announcement of Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. It's it's still clearly you know in the you know in in the public consciousness the, in really the public consciousness. The BBC still love it as a as a thing. Clearly, it's not like you know the the late 80s where they just didn't want anything to do with it and want rid of it as quickly as possible this is this is their cash cow that's what this is and sometimes that leads to some questionable you know decisions in terms of marketing in terms of you know how the series is is sort of spaced out um but i thought last series is one of the the most consistently enjoyable series there's been Possibly since that that David and I love Matt Smith. Don't get me wrong, I really love Matt Smith and I love his era. But I think it's I think for me certainly, uh, Capaldi's second series is probably the most consistently good series since um, David Tennant's last wow. last year. But, but, uh, but that's yeah, personal opinion. Oh yeah, wow. But but Matt, you've struggled a bit with the Stephen Moffat's. How did you find? Mm. How did do did you prefer it since Peter Capaldi's been there? Because a lot of people have said. That that they feel Stephen Moffat's come on with Peter Capaldi. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I'm not. I, I, basically, I'm not a huge fan of the Matt Smith era. But I mean, the thing I was I was sort of thinking about this this morning is that you know when when the episode one of of uh, next year's series goes out, you know it's it's assuming it goes out in the spring, it's going to be twelve years since the show came back, and that is what <laughs> that that's the distance between an unearthly child and robot isn't it yeah which when when you <laughs> yeah. consider the the sort of the the creative highs and lows that all, the series had, had kind of gone through at that point and the the sort of complete handbrake turn changes of direction and sort of uh, meandering attempts to sort of do something a bit different in that time i i sort of think it the new series can probably be seen in that context you know i mean it's not the i absolutely adore the christopher eccleston series uh the tenant series um I'd, I'd agree with mark actually i think the 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 fourth uh series four or the third tenant series is is absolutely first class i really like that um matt smith era not for me but i can sort of see where it was going and i have to say that i've really enjoyed the capaldi seasons i think um you know i think there's a there's a lot of sort of writerly hangover of sort of Russell T. Day, uh, sorry, Stephen Moffat doing the same sort of things that he was trying to do in the in the Matt Smith era, but sort of getting them getting the same sort of mechanics to kind of work a lot better. And I think that you know the the writing and the creative approach to it is much more disciplined. Um, so I, I think I, also I've been I've really enjoyed the the Capaldi one. Sorry, Mark, talked over you there. No, sorry. I was, yeah, sorry to interrupt. I was I was just to say I think what I've enjoyed certainly with the, with that last series is, and I don't know if it's because. Um, Peter Capaldi himself is an older actor or Stephen Moffat as a writer is getting older and has different concerns but I think um, this kind of preoccupation with, with death and mortality has 
I don't know. It's 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 injected something really interesting into these sort of last two series of of Doctor Who, um, and something a something a bit different. And it's it's not always this kind of you know fun runaround, but at the same time, it still retains that kind of it's a it's more of a gallows humor, but it it still retains a, a sense of humor. And I found that really interesting to watch. Is um you're watching a man leaving a job that he loves and reflecting on on his life through the it, it really feels like an authored run of of doctor who which is mm. it's quite an interesting thing but in a good way you know not necessarily for me anyway okay one more question before we go maybe a slightly controversial one well, i don't know depending on what your answers Ooh. are well blame stephen moffat as we know was gonna leave last year stayed on for <clears throat> an extra season so that he to make sure there was something on telly while they waited for Chris Chibnall to finish off Broadchurch. Mark, are you looking forward to Chris Chibnall? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you know what? I um I enjoyed The Power of Three. Um I I think that but I'll see what he does. I'll see because the thing is, I mean, as a showrunner, I you know, I think you know, if you just look at it purely on the jobs that he's done, if we just take Doctor Who away from a minute, he, you know, he's a very, I mean, and actually, can we take Torchwood away as well? That'll just, that'll, uh, <laughs> yeah, damage, my, that'll damage my argument somewhat. Um, yeah, please take Torchwood away, never bring it back. Um, I think he, you know, Broadchurch, and I think some of the stuff he's done in America, he's clearly a man that understands how to run a television program. And I'd like to think that a lot of the writers, you know, that, that have cut their teeth on Doctor Who and that have contributed to Doctor Who over the past, well, 13 years, I guess, well, you know, once that hits uh, TV screens, will contribute to it. And I, it's always good to see a, a fresh pair of hands take on the show, I guess, and I think it will breathe some new life into it. Um, I think it would be nice if we have Capaldi stay on to kind of paper over the cracks a little bit so it's not just like a real hard reset. But then maybe a real hard reset might be right i'm just skirting around slagging off chris chibnall because i don't want to oh, i don't I'm, want you I'm, to i don't want you to i'm 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 nervous i'm i'm nervous just because you know it is the unknown isn't it you know but yeah hey i jump in the unknown's always i think it's a lot more the unknown than it was when stephen moffat took over i think i was actually quite surprised by stephen moffat in how much more like russell t davis he was than i was expecting him to be but but with Stephen Moffat, you kind of knew what his themes would be. Yeah. Whereas with Chris I, Chibnall, I don't think you do. Well, I think with Chris Chibnall, I think with his Doctor Who scripts, they've they've um, been quite good at aping a show style or writing to us, you know, to specifications. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we've had a kind of authorial voice come from Chris Chibnall yet. So yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what he does with Doctor Who. Um, I mean, Broadchurch shows that he has that understanding of characters and of emotional depth that, you know, has been in the show since Russell T. Davis. So, yeah, it could be absolutely fantastic. I think the one thing that I think I've noticed in Chris Chibnall's writing is the sensibility of the late Patrick Troutons. Not that it's a base under siege, but it's a bunch of characters who already know each other and already have relationships and then you throw something into the mix that throws those relationships into question, mm. which is kind of what you had on Broadchurch. And I think it's basically yeah. what you've had in his Doctor Who stories as well. Mm. Anyway, Matt, Chris Chibnall. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of agree. Uh, I kind of agree with Mark on this, and you know, sort of similarly skirting around the point in a way. I mean, I think, I, I think it's really hard to try and find clues in um, Chibnall's writing. I mean, on our podcast, John has winningly sort of coined this term a, a Doctor Who procedural which is what what he calls, you know, your sort of standard setup of, you know, the, the doctor sort of landing in a place and it being a fairly kind of routine investigation until until there is a conclusion. Um, and I think it would be fair to say that most of Chibnall's Doctor Who scripts so far have been kind of Doctor Who procedurals. I mean, that said, uh, <laughs> you know, there's there's quite a, you know, with with the Davis to, to Moffat handover, um very there was a, a a very very strong flavor to moffat's writing you know we we knew what the moffat episode you know the the, the moffat episode every year in the in the davis era was going to be some sort of uh brain bending time twisting yeah. paradox kind of thing and that you know is sort of what we got scaled up certainly in the map smith era i think uh, personally for my taste to to diminishing returns and a, and a lot less successfully so I mean I don't I don't know I mean I've I've I can't really glean what it's going to be like. That said, as there's a sort of and again maybe this is just me being a bit sort of industry about it, but I'm I'm quite interested by a lot of the the murmurings that at one point he was experimenting with the idea of a, a much more kind of collaborative writing room setup rather than just farming out individual scripts yeah. and then writing a bunch himself. You know, writing it much more like a, a, a US style. I mean. You know, there aren't a huge number of examples of that thing kind of thing being done well in this country, but I, you know, I find I find it interesting at least that he's looking at the way in which you know just how the show is made and how you get it out there and 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 what the creative process is seems to be up up for grabs for him rather than it being, you know, a, a one bloke writes half of them and then he gets some people in to write the other half. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's like I, I personally, you know, I've I've enjoyed. I think Moffat has had a, a, a little bit of a creative uh, creative renaissance during the during the Capaldi era. Um, I'm I'm excited to see something new. Um, I don't see anything particularly in Chibnall's scripts that excites me about what he might do to it. But then that said, he is clearly capable of running a big, high stakes TV successful TV drama, and I'm, I'd be sort of intrigued to see what he does with it. Excellent. Well. Basically, we've run out of time, but we've got through everything I wanted to. And oh, good. <laughs> I just really want to say thanks for indulging me, guys. Oh, thanks for having me. Because there's nothing better. Yeah, than, thanks for having me. There's nothing better when you're listening to a podcast at work than actually being able to answer back and have the people on the podcast talk to you. <laughs> so this is like a bit of a daydream of mine. Come I was going to say, is this is this going out online or is this just for your own private use? Is no, this, this is just uh... for my own private use. Oh, okay. <laughs> No this, <laughs> no, this should be out in about three or four days' time, actually. Ah. So, yeah. Also, we'll know who the president is by then. Oh, we will, yeah, because actually we're recording this on the day of the election. I'm thinking of setting my alarm early tomorrow so I can get up and watch an hour <laughs> of telly before I go out. But you never know. Guys, before you go, you ought to repeat the names of and tell people where they can find your respective podcasts, Mark. It's uh, on the timelash.wordpress.com. That's uh, kind of where we put up all our episodes. But I mean, you can also search it on iTunes as well for on the timelash. Yeah. And Matt, uh, we are. So our show is called "I'll Explain Later." 
you can find it at I'llExplainLater.com or IllExplainLater.com, as has been pointed out. <laughs> yeah. Apostrophes in uh, URLs, which was a stupid mistake we made, but there we go. Uh, or, yes, if you search for I'll Explain Later on iTunes or Overcast or whatever it is you use for podcasts, uh, you, you'll, you'll find us out there. Excellent. Right, if all goes according to plan, and knowing me, it probably won't, but it might do, so for once you never know, some of the conversation we've been having tonight will be repeated with your respective other halves on next week's edition. I'll say no more than that till we get you've got, there. You've got my wife coming on. Well, <clears throat> she hasn't told me this. <laughs> well, no. She, well, does she know that you're on here now? I suppose uh, she's, she does. she's sitting in the other room watching The Simpsons right now, so I'll go and, I'll go and warn her. Well, she's sensible. <laughs> but, and oh, and one other thing. If all goes according to plan, after the music in a minute, there's going to be a little um, Easter egg that's not the Easter egg that people who've been listening to the last few episodes will be expecting to hear. So it might be something that's worth staying tuned for. I'm trying, I'm probably being too cryptic. Just keep listening after the music. There's something else, probably. But until next week, then thanks, guys. I was JR. I was Mark Donaldson. I am still Mark Donaldson, and I was Mark Donaldson. <laughs> and uh, I am, and will be for the time being, Matt Nieder. And we will speak again <laughs> soon. Right, this is JR. I'm back again with... Simon. And the reason we've come back again is because, well, a couple of things came up that I wanted to talk about on the podcast. And seeing as we had two guest podcasts coming up and I didn't really want to leave them till December, I thought, well, I'll just pop around to Simon's and we'll do 10 minutes to bong on the end of the podcast. And we'll talk about them now. And one of the reasons why I've done it like that is because... Oh my word! You weren't expecting that. So, wow. in the uh, in the long tradition of visual podcasting without pictures, <laughs> what have I started? Yeah, exactly. You and Lee with your picture quizzes on the radio. Simon, do you want to mention what I might be just about to open? If it's what I think it is, it's it's the it's the return of Who Dares Publishing it, in the form of certainly is. I've had this sitting at home for about four days now. I've been waiting to come up here so I can open it. It's the Andrew Skilleter Target Books Covers calendar for 2017. 
And I figured I would open it in Simon's presence so I could get Simon's reaction to it. Because seeing as Simon's the one who's more interested in art than the rest of us. <laughs> well, you say that, busman's holiday, but yeah. Well, it's nicely packaged. Wow. What? Oh, I got a signature on it. Oh, he signed as well. Look at that. Well, what do you think of the size of it? And what do you Sweet. think, actually, what do you think of the paper, first of all? That's pretty good paper. That's very nice paper. That's, um, yeah, yeah. It's a nice, nice dose of silk there. Right, I'm opening well, it's, the calendar. Well, it's a, well, should I describe it? It's, it's, it's a very nice size. Is that A3? It is about A3, isn't it? I think it's, yeah, I think A3 is what they give. Yeah. There's yeah. the back. We've got the back with the 12 pictures. Yeah. Oh, very nice vintage photo of Andrew there. Well, I'd better say, we'd better explain mm. that Who Dares was a company that existed in the 1980s, mm. which was founded by Andrew Skilleter, and which started out with him... Well, he for his first big brush with Doctor Who fame was at the 1983 Longleat exhibition, where they were selling art cards and such. Because mm. he'd already been doing the Target books just before that and then since the Longleat exhibition he spent most of the rest of the 80s publishing Doctor Who art mm, mm. books and posters and postcards and all sorts of things like that including actually one of the things he worked on and one of the things that company published was David Banks' Cybermen book yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know <laughs> slightly mad shall we open it and see what the pictures look like up close and personal because these are all pictures we've only ever seen on the front of Target books. I tell you what, though, just looking at the cover, just as a first, what, what the cover is the gunfighters. It's the gunfighters, but when you look, the detail on the hair—that's just something you wouldn't pick up on the obviously on the Target book, not not even on those expanded reprints. Yeah, no. Well, we're not <clears> going to go through them all. Yeah, one by one. The no. first one's Warriors of the Deep and the Invasion. Oh, there's Colin Baker looking spangly from. The reprint of the Twin Dilemma, I think. Yeah. It's not the original cover. No. Oh, there's Roger Delgado. That's Doomsday a nice Weapon. One. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that's Mind of Evil. Oh, Mind of Evil. Oh, yeah. yeah. Frontios one. Yeah. I mean, they all look nice. Oh, there's that's an odd one. Tom Baker, Nightmare of Eden. Mm, mm. Actually, I never noticed what's going on in the background there. Yeah, no, you're right. There's, which isn't... There's a fair amount of texture there, which... Which you wouldn't pick up on on the book cover. Interesting um, application of colour there as well. Yeah, interesting. And actually, that looks you, that looks completely different from the book cover, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And the, the contrast between the colours. Mm. Oh, there's the gunfighters. That looks fantastic. Yeah. Oh, the two doctors. Two doctors, yeah. Actually, look. You get so much more detail than you do. Mm. And they don't suffer by being... Most of them don't suffer at all by being expanded in size. No. Because no. these have got to be, what, two and a half times? I've not seen the originals, so I, I didn't see the um, the exhibition, so I don't know to what size he... Uh, obviously, most artists will work at a larger size and then reduce down, so... Yeah. Well, the Gopolis one's looking pretty good. I mean, that's one thing I will say, is that with, with a few artists, you know, the, the their artwork is, particularly with comic art, the, when you see the full, usually A3 version, <clears throat> you see the flaws, but there are no flaws to be seen. It's really rather lovely. 
Yeah, that Legopolis. Yeah. It's better for being Legopolis. And actually, oh, yes, demons, now, right? now the demons, that, that really benefits from being blown up. Because I wasn't even aware that was an Andrew, one of Andrew's pieces until fairly recently. Because it's quite different. It's more sort of line work and it's less. Yeah, it's slightly more like the old fashioned target covers. Yeah, yeah. I do wonder if it's one of the early ones he did. Oh, yeah, I think it is. But that, no, that, that looks much nicer than it does actually on the book cover. Oh, yeah, you get a lot more detail there than you'd ever see mm, mm. in the small size. And an earthly child. And that classic. looks completely different. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's watercolour. So if you saw that on the book cover, you'd think that was some. Oh, actually, no, it could be acrylic. Interesting, interesting. But I mean, that I think that's quite an well, iconic cover. Oh, and the Abominable Snowman, which looks great. Mm, mm. And it has this nice effect around the light in the background. But look at the light. Nice bit of bristling, as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it says in the back. I don't know. I know it doesn't say what they were using on the mm, back, but there's mm. a little bit of information and blurb on the back of each, mm. including a comparison between the painting and the cover. Look at the. Oh Earthly yeah, Child of course. One, yeah, as the painting itself is slightly darker than the cover, and the cover's obviously been brought up to make it look a bit more mm. Mm. interesting on the shelf. And well, yeah, you can see. The I mean, his treatment of the monsters is amazing, isn't it? I mean, Nightmare of Aiden, the, the mandrel just looks looks great. Well, that's the Andrew Skilleter calendar. Then mm. I'm guessing that's a recommendation. People are going to want this anyway, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Because that is. Uh, Classic piece of merchandise. <laughs> I just remember seeing the Who Dare stuff advertised on the back of the uh, the magazine and thinking, oh, I wish I could afford that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I only had the paper around, if I remember rightly. Well, but it's not cheap, though. But, I mean, <coughs> it's a nice calendar, a good size on decent paper. You're paying mm. for quality. And it comes... Well, if people want to look at it, look it up. It's on the Who Dares website, which mm. is who dares publishing dot. I don't know. It's there's definitely a six. Facebook group, isn't there? Yeah, there's Facebook a Facebook group. You find it easily enough. Doctor Who stroke Who Dares Google, and you'll find it. Or mm. Andrew Skilleter. Mm. The other thing that I wanted to mention mm. is David J. Howe's uh, Doctor Who Merchandise Museum, mm. which mm. is something because I don't know if. But people have probably heard David J. Howe on the podcast because he's been on a couple of times. But the thing he's got going now, he's the guy who did the um, David, David Howe's Transcendental Toy Box books, which was a history of Doctor Who merchandise. Mm. And of course, because he's doing a history of Doctor Who merchandise, he can only do that because he's got a lot of this stuff. And I think over the years, he's pretty much collected everything. Certainly from the 60s and 70s. Mm, so mm. anything there was to buy from the 60s and 70s pretty much is in his collection. But that's like in an attic or in some boxes or on some shelves in his dining room or whatever. <laughs> that's pretty much wasted. Mm. So he has harboured this dream for a number of years to actually start a museum whereby he can put it all on display. But here's the thing. So he found a place that he could buy, mm. which was big enough and which was the right sort of place, moved home to be, you know, in the right area for this place. And this place needs about 30 grand's worth of work doing it up, you know, redoing the floors and the walls and everything else, mm. putting in bookcases <coughs> and stuff and all this kind of business. It needs about 30 grand's worth of work, which he was, he was going to undertake himself. But then he had a heart attack. 
and because he had a heart attack and he was self-employed, basically lost his job. Oh. That was about... Harsh. Yeah, so that was basically about 18 months or so ago. Mm. Mm. So, and because work is slightly thinner on the ground now, he's not got enough disposable income anymore to uh, actually make this museum work. No. To come up with this 30 grand to do the renovation on the building. So he's gone to Indiegogo to, oh, I was gonna say. to do some crowdfunding yeah. in the hope of uh, getting it together. I mean, it's one of these things where you pay a certain amount and there are lots of, um, what do they call them? The, the things uh, you get. There's a word for it, isn't there? Yeah. There yeah. Lots of different pledge things. Yeah, yeah. Like rewards. For instance, and, yeah, yeah for, for instance, one of the things is you'll throw you dinner. And another one of the rewards is... Um, you know, a family day out at the place. Because, I mean, a merchandise museum of Doctor Who merchandise, and it's in Lincolnshire, mm. that's not going to be something that's going to be open seven days a week for the public. So what it'll be is it'll be, you know, it'll open it at weekends or whatever, or you'll mm. have, or you'll mark certain dates in the diary, mm. in the calendar, and say to people, these are the days when it's open, come here on these days, that sort of thing. Mm. Or you can make an appointment and say, look, I'd like to come on such and such a day, and they'll say, well, that's fine, I'll come and open it up so you can come in, that kind of stuff. So that would be, well, especially now with the news that the exhibition's going to close. <laughs> I know, it was like, you couldn't, that's a dreadful bit of timing, mm. but maybe also another, in a way, a good bit of timing. Mm. But I mean, this is an alternative for that. That, you're basically just looking at props, and in the shot, you've got current merchandise. Here, what you're looking at, he's got a few props as well, which will be in there. Mm. But you're looking at a history of toy Daleks, <coughs> yeah. history of Doctor Who dolls and all this kind of stuff, and mm. all kinds of things. All the videos and the books and everything else as well will be in this place, which, you know, I... I mean, even the new series has been going, going long enough that, that visitors, new Who yeah, yeah. fans, would visit it and say, oh, I used to play with one of those. And well, yeah, because, I mean, nostalgia years, yeah. a lot of the stuff from the new series you just can't get hold of anymore no, either. No. And I, I wouldn't suppose that his collection of new series stuff is as comprehensive as his collection of the classic stuff, mm. but it, it would still be pretty comprehensive, I'd imagine. Um, that's Indiegogo forward slash uh, projects forward slash Doctor Who merchandising museum, I think. Okay, okay. Oh, but anyway, again, it's all over Facebook and everywhere else. It's the kind yeah. of thing you can look up. But that's definitely an Indiegogo campaign that I should think classic series fans. Isn't it interesting? Uh, look at, I was yeah. I was thinking about the the fact that the museum's closing. I know I know there's there's practical reasons why it's happening it's to do with the lease, isn't it? It's, it's coming to a yeah. But I can't imagine if they wanted to keep it open, they wouldn't have no just extended it. Yeah, yeah. Is it, is I just it, does it, are we kind of c coming over the precipice of this? Not so much at the end of a golden era, but more the the public visibility of the show. Maybe I think we did when Tennant left. To be honest, mm, mm. I think ever since Tennant left the sort of that aspect of it, the sort of external financial aspect of it has mm. probably been heading downwards on a downward trajectory because when Tennant was there, a lot of people bought into Doctor Who weren't Doctor Who fans. Mm. And so when Tennant goes, the Tennant fans kind of go with him as well. Mm. And whatever you might think of the series as it was then and the series as it was now, then it was really really plugged in mm, to being mm. big event television. Yeah. 
up there with Harry Potter. But something like the exhibition, because it's in a big building and it's in a good location, it's the kind of thing that needs a really strong turnover. Mm. I can't imagine the turnover for something like a Doctor Who exhibition. Do you know, if it's in Longley, mm. where there was an exhibition, mm. or if it's on Blackpool's Golden Mile, where there was an exhibition, that's not your only reason for going there. So you will draw in more of the casuals. Mm. But to go down into Cardiff Bay for the Doctor Who exhibition, and when it's in a dedicated building of the size that it was, you need a big turnover. Mm. I just can't imagine the turnovers there. Obviously, there is a turnover, mm. but I can't imagine the turnover is big enough that they'd want to say, OK, let's plug another 10 years into mm. this. Mm. I do wonder whether there's, there's the opportunity for a static... The long leap would open their doors again. Well, I tell you what, what nobody's mentioned so far, and we only found out about this about 24 hours ago, is that you've got this... I can't remember what it's called, but it opens up in about two or three years' time, mm. where there's going to be... Um, is it the Paramount thing where yeah, there's going to be Doctor yeah. Who and Sherlock and what have you? Mm. I don't know if it's going to be rides or whatever, but it's going to be something like that. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, like a British Disney. Yeah. Mm. So if there's going to be like a British version of Disney World, which includes the BBC and which includes Doctor Who, mm. I can't imagine that a lot of the stuff at the exhibition won't fetch up there. I was going to say, again, maybe it's it's a trend. These things are building up, aren't they? You've got the Harry Potter experience and... Yeah. Well, I can imagine then BBC's lease is up with Cardiff Council and Cardiff Council says, well, we want you to take out another five years. And the BBC says, well, we only want two years because we want to move it all over to, you know, UK Disney or whatever they're calling it. Mm -hmm. And Cardiff Council says, well, we're not compromising on that. Five years or nothing. So the BBC says, okay, we'll just bring it in storage for a couple of years and fish it back out in 2019 or whatever Mm. it is. And would that then coincide with the new Doctor? Who knows, might do. Mm. If Capaldi stays with Chibnall for a year, that means he does 2017. Who knows, if he does two years, get a new doctor in 19. I don't know when the dates of all these things are going to be, mm. but it's got us, like I say, it was in the back of my mind when I read the exhibition was closing. Maybe that's because they're moving it all somewhere else. Mm. Mm. Anyway, there you are, Simon. I brought the yeah. calendar around. Thank you very much. I surprised you with it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> oh, it's, it's lovely. Yeah. So, well, you know, it, it's brought it all back to me because I literally used to stare at them. I used to stare at the piece of artwork, and 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 now, yeah, it's the opportunity to do it again, but even even greater resolution. I mean, it's interesting actually the the how printing's become. Well, actually, printing's I'm changed at this with one digital. of the mind of evil, and you can see against the back, you can see the canvas he's painted it on. Yeah. Pretty much. I think that's what you can see, isn't it? Or is that just... Well, quite possibly, stuff? yeah. It could be watercolour paper giving you a texture. Down here in particular. Mm. Stuff you'd never pick up on the Target books. And let's face it, anybody who's ever bought a Target book knows his work. Mm. Mm. Right, that's the end of our little Easter egg then. Uh, let's, let's hope it's the, a reprisal of those sort of... That sort of work, really. Well, fingers crossed. Guess a job. <laughs> Until next week, I was JR. I was Simon. And we will speak again soon.